Welcome to BR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR and Education. In today's episode, we're going to talk about teacher training in VR. There's been quite a slow growth of VR in learning for schools and institutions. However, many vanguards are paving the way for an easy adoption. And one of those is Rob Terriot. Rob's an immersive technology manager former professor of paramedicine at Georgian College in Ontario, Canada. He's also president of the Canadian chapter of Immersive Learning Research Network. He's an author and a great researcher. Rob is definitely a pioneer in the VR industry. So he's here today to talk about training other teachers on the effective use of VR in education. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Craig. Craig, sorry. You know, I always start with the origin story, especially as it relates to VR. How did you get interested and excited about using VR for teaching and learning? Um, I first became interested when I did a, a master's in educational technology. Um, I wrote some papers on augmented and virtual reality, and it really intrigued me as an experiential learning platform. And from there, I started exploring virtual reality for my paramedic students. And um, I tried to get my hands on a VR headset. Uh, this was back in 2016, I believe. And um, I couldn't find anyone who owned one. And uh, uh, so I ended up purchasing a VR headset and a gaming computer and exploring it that way. And I attended a conference, a paramedic educator conference in Washington, D.C. around that time. And there was a company there that had a patient simulation VR application. And I was standing at the exhibitor booth and there was someone with the headset on and I could see what he was seeing on a flat screen. And it was a patient simulation, an animated patient. And quite frankly, I, I really wasn't impressed. Um, but then I put the headset on and that was a completely different experience. I felt like I was in the room with that patient and the patient was in distress. He was struggling to breathe. I could see discoloration of his lips from lack of oxygen. I could speak to him. And when he responded to me, he was only able to say four or five words between taking breaths. I could see his chest heaving <clears throat> as he struggled to breathe. I could walk over to his um, night table, pick up his medications to see what he was taking. I could take a stethoscope and listen to his chest and identify abnormal lung sounds. I could reach down to his wrist and my uh, controller vibrated with each pulse. Um, and I could continue to assess him and take a history and initiate treatments and, and then activate transport uh, by ambulance to hospital. And a couple of things really struck me after that experience. It, it was it was a wow moment, like a lot of people experience when they try virtual reality for the first time. But the, the thing that really struck me was that I got the same twinge of adrenaline that I get as a paramedic when I encounter someone who's 
really, really sick, and I think I need to assess this person and treat them quickly before they deteriorate. And the second thing that struck me was that for my first-year paramedic students, um, they really have no context. We talk about anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, and then we do some case-based learning, and we describe, you know, how uh, certain patients might present and how they may appear. And, but they, other than maybe uh, the odd image, which are difficult to come across because of privacy issues, obviously, um, they really have no context. And virtual reality puts you at the scene. And so you're, uh, you quickly begin to understand what it's like to uh, assess and treat someone who's in their apartment or who's at the side of the highway with traffic rushing by. Um, and so um, it, it was a true experiential learning moment. And I thought this could really change everything we do in, in, in education. We could, you know, before they get to the lab training and the hospital training and the field placement, we could really put them in the real world. Um, so that was really my inspiration to move forward. What a vivid description. I, I, I love how when you unpack this, that all the little minor details that you remembered, because I think Google Cardboard first came out and I had a lot of people be uninspired by Google Cardboard. But, you know, the people that are pushing VR right now are the ones that sort of are saying, you know, these higher end headsets, the ones that allow us to do so much more, like move around, grab things, you know, experience things. These are the vagabonds or the people trying to really push it into education like what you are. Yeah, and I think um, it's important to look at VR in a, in a different lens, lens pedagogically. Um, you know, as Jeremy Balenson, who was the founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University, wrote in his book, um, uh, well, the name of the book escapes me right now. Uh, but Experience on Demand. Thank you, Experience on Demand. Um, you know, it's important to think of what would you do in virtual reality that would otherwise in an analog world be dangerous, impossible, counterproductive, or expensive. And you could add a few more qualifiers to that, like uh, difficult, uh, impractical, uh, inappropriate. Uh, and when I say inappropriate, I, I, you know, I mean things like taking a group of um, firefighter, police, or paramedic students to a crash scene or to a crime scene would be inappropriate, but very doable in virtual reality. Which leads me to my uh, question about you designing some micro-credentials. So, you know, you, you, I've seen you through LinkedIn and you're offering micro-credential courses for instructors and teachers related to the use of VR. Can you talk a bit about this program and what led you to want to do this? Right. So it's just a single uh, micro-credential. It's a uh, six-week course, roughly 18 hours, mostly asynchronous, but we meet live uh, online once a week. Uh, the first and last weeks we meet on um, a video conferencing platform, but the, uh, the four weeks in between we meet in virtual reality, typically either in engaged VR or alt-space VR. And um, a few years ago, Georgian College became a member of the VRARA, the Virtual Reality Augmented Reality Association, which, as you know, is a global organization with over 19,000 
corporate members and um uh it was um uh it it's has an enterprise focus but i found it really valuable as an educator because it um, connected me with a lot of uh, software developers and a lot of people in the industry who were working on education but um, in the process of attending meetings there, in particular their college and university committee meetings and their education committee meetings, um, they kept talking about how, if we wanted to get, uh, if enterprise wanted to get into education, we really needed to educate the educators. And I totally agreed. Um, so I decided to develop a virtual reality educator micro-credential at Georgian. And um, we started running it a year ago or so. And uh, we're, we're going to continue to run at least a couple of um, external courses per year and one or two internal courses per year. And I think it's, this is, it's, it's a new medium, relatively speaking. I, I mean, it's, you know, people will tell you it's been around for half a century, but um, it's for viable and affordable virtual reality. It's really only been around since about 2016. And what's, unique about it uh, is that it's the only educational technology that I'm aware of that enables students to learn in the cognitive, psychomotor, and affect, affective domains. Uh, it's an experiential learning platform, and to me, that's incredibly powerful and, and worth exploring uh, and exploring to a large extent. So, um, so um, I wanted to, uh, to, to help other educators begin to understand uh, what the potential value is of it, and I think it's, you know, I'm 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 an ed tech enthusiast, but I'm also a skeptic, and I think it's really important to be skeptical about uh, any new medium that comes along, and and uh, you know, not take it as a a solution looking for a problem. <laughs> so so uh, um, so that's what we've been doing, and uh, it's it's been really good. Of the six classes, do you advance enough to talk about world building and how to actually design a VR experience in maybe no coding situations? We don't. And um, to be frank, I'm very reluctant to go down the path of teaching educators how to do anything fairly advanced on the technical side because, you know, teachers are... Uh, content experts, and um, you know, most of the teachers I know are need technology that's really intuitive. Uh, although there are always going to be educators who are going to learn Unity and learn how to do world building and and you know help provide content for other teachers, which is fantastic. But uh, I decided to stay away from that area. Uh, well, partly because I'm really unqualified to build world worlds, other than using bake basic assets in Altspace VR as an example, but I really wanted to focus on um, the experience part and, and understanding how, um, you know, things like agency within VR, being able to do things with your hands and the importance of that, of that as part of a, an, you know, in body cognition. Um, so I've, I've stayed away from the development side. Let's talk about that for a sec, because that's a, an, an excellent sort of stepping stone when teachers think about instructional design, pedagogy, often the default is a passive learning experience because A, you know, it takes less time, as you alluded to, teachers are super busy people, they are content, often content experts, but 
They aren't necessarily uh, instructional design gurus. So mm -hmm. you, the default sometimes for a new technology like VR is to disseminate information, but now you're inside a virtual world instead of the physical world. For example, I had a, uh, another teacher on my podcast and he talked about one of the favorite 3D worlds that he gets a uh, request for them to build is a virtual classroom. And, you know, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier on about VR can create any context you want. So why is that, Rob? Or are you seeing that in these courses that teachers aren't necessarily sort of uh, understanding that how to use the tool or how to use the medium? I think the worst thing you can possibly do uh, in virtual reality is to replicate a classroom. It's to me, it's a terrible use of imagination. Um, now, having said that, it wouldn't be unreasonable to recreate a chemistry lab. Um, but a regular classroom with chairs and desks, to me, is, would be a terrible waste of virtual reality's uh, power. Um, so I think, you know, people are used to what they're used to, and they kind of imagine having uh, an online class that's rather than video-based, it's it's classroom-based, and they think, you know, that that might be uh, a more engaging place to be. But I think um, it's really important to use virtual reality for its true power, and that's uh, not just to be able to see things, but to be able to see things that you wouldn't be able to see in the classroom. So if you're teaching language learning, um, that's oftentimes context-based. So if you're going to be teaching French language conversation in the cafe, why not use virtual reality to actually go into a cafe with your students? If uh, We have um, in our Indigenous Studies program, they have four language courses for Anishinaabe Moen, and uh, one of them is language in the home, then there's language in the community, language in the workplace, and language in the natural environment. So we built several worlds, not, not we at Georgian, but we contracted a company to build um, several worlds. Uh, to meet those needs. And the students love the context. It just uh, reinforces the learning when you're learning language in the home, that you're actually in a home with your teacher. Um, that's that's very powerful. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a real shame when, I, um, you know, when I go into a, a platform and I start seeing classrooms in VR with desks and chairs and a screen, uh, you know, for a lecture, <clears throat> um, you know, lecturing really should not happen in virtual reality, in my personal opinion. Uh, and if it's going to happen, it should be in really short spurts. And then if you're on a social VR platform, uh, you know, you should be breaking out into groups and having discussions and, and using the the context of the space that you're in to reinforce the subject matter that you're discussing, if at all possible. You also alluded to 3D assets, which I want to talk a bit about. Um, so we can we can spawn through various platforms like Sketchfab or just get a someone to create all sorts of 3D assets that people could use inside a virtual world. What are some ideas of what they could do with? the 3D assets, whether it's an example from uh, healthcare education or your paramedic experience, what would they do with them? Yeah, so um, 
there are lots of 3D assets available online, some free, some pay for. Uh, and uh, we are just now uh, embarking on a project to begin to uh, scan objects for various programs at the college uh, to create 3D objects to be able to bring those into um, not just uh, 3D environments in VR, but also use those for PowerPoint presentations. So we've been talking with faculty across a variety of disciplines like uh, engineering and uh, marine and um, uh, indigenous studies and uh, health sciences. And we're building a repository of 3D objects. We only just begun, but we're, we've got a small number. We're building a repository uh, of those to make accessible to um, college faculty. And, uh, you know, there's um, a great deal to be said to for taking, for example, a, um, a marine engineering group of students and faculty into a 3D environment like Engage VR, for example, and being able to bring in a 3D engine room and walk through the engine room and, and take parts off and disassemble and reassemble, uh, that would be the ultimate goal rather than just looking at, at objects. But um, you can scale the objects up, you can scale the objects down, you can flip them around, and, and you can do things that you wouldn't be able to do in a theory class and might be very difficult or impossible to do even in a lab. Um, so I think think that's the great advantage of, of looking at 3D objects. Um, you know, I think about anatomy and physiology. We, we have quite a few students who are learning anatomy in virtual reality currently uh, across a, a variety of different programs. And uh, some of the comments we hear from students are things like, I really didn't understand the axes of the body until I was able to walk around an anatomical model uh, in virtual reality. And uh, so to me, that, that spatial experience is really quite powerful. Mm. The use of, of VR in higher ed is accelerating, not as much in K-12 education yet. Why such a, a slow adoption? That's a really good question. Uh, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that, you know, um, innovation and early adoption happens at the teacher level, at the faculty level, and it often only takes one or two champions to um, elevate uh, an educational platform to to the, the place where it needs to be. And so um, it's, it's very difficult to convey to administrators, for example, the value or the potential value of a platform like virtual reality until they experience it themselves. And experiencing it usually requires a champion in one of the classes to say, hey, uh, do you want to try this out? When, when I uh, first really became interested in virtual reality and, and uh, acquired a standalone headset, um, I was still teaching paramedics, but I was eager to um, uh, put together a proposal to build uh, a, a single VR hub in our library. And the library, I felt, was really important because it's a high-traffic area. It's, it's accessed by all students and all programs. And uh, it would be a place where I could invite teachers and students to experience virtual reality. But in, leading up to that point, um, I would be sitting in my office with a VR headset and 
if a nursing faculty member walked by my office, I would step out and say, hey, when you've got 10 minutes, why don't you try this virtual reality anatomy program? And they did and loved it. And then someone else would come to me and say, hey, um, so-and-so told me that you have this VR headset with the anatomy. Can I take a look? And I, yes, of course. And so I was literally soliciting people out in the hallway and uh, uh, including, you know, associate deans and deans and uh, all of the faculty members from chemistry and physics and a variety of other programs. And uh, because, you know, once you experience it, uh, provided it's not a bad experience that induces motion sickness or something, um, it, it, it leaves an indelible memory and, you know, leaves people very curious to see what other things can I do in this, in, in this medium. In that small sample size, were there very many people that weren't excited or interested or hooked? Not many. I would say by far the vast majority were quite excited about it. And, you know, even if they weren't, uh, if if I gave them a headset and let them experience virtual reality anatomy, and they didn't, um, they weren't teaching anatomy. They they could immediately see the potential. Um, and um, I had some people try um, uh, a program, an application called Art Plunge. You might be familiar with from the Oculus Store, and it's it's uh, an application where you're looking at a, a famous piece of art. Um, like the Mona Lisa, for example, and when you point and click at the Mona Lisa, it takes you inside the painting, uh, and you get to see the the subject as the artist would have seen the subject in the room in a in a six degrees of freedom experience where you can walk around and move around and see that space, and that was mind blowing to me and mind blowing to um, lots of faculties it, 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 and really a good example of how you can reimagine learning in a virtual reality environment. You know, some, such a good example of perspective. Some people would say, Rob, that it's a content problem and educators mm -hmm. just aren't aware of what content they might use for their right. curriculum. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say, well, I've been curating, curating rather a, a long list of virtual reality uh, applications for uh, for learning. So people are welcome to reach out to me, and I'll send them uh, a copy of that. It's I have close to three hundred different applications, but you know, it's difficult to find applications sometimes. And then you know, you have to speak with the company and find out what the pricing is, and you know, is it. Is it cost prohibitive or is it uh, reasonable? And would there be a sufficient return on investment? Does the learning experience address a sufficient number of learning objectives or does it address really niche learning objectives that would otherwise be dangerous, impossible, counterproductive, expensive, um, difficult, impractical, etc.? cetera? Um, so it's, it's definitely not easy and uh, you know, every school ideally should have someone in their uh, center for teaching and learning or uh, their library who is a champion, who who um, knows what is available so they can uh, showcase it to faculty. Um, you know, the interesting thing in, in about technology in general, I find, and, and um, there's a quote by um, uh, Paolo Coelho that always resonated with me. He says, uh, sometimes you have to travel a great distance to find what is near. 
And I find that's very true with educational technology. You search and search and search. And then when you find it, you realize, wow, why didn't I find that much sooner? And <laughs> that just seems so easy now. Um, you know, whether it's selecting a podcast microphone or uh, finding a, an online learning platform for synchronized online learning, it's, uh, it's a difficult journey. And, and this is why I think it's so important for uh, educators, whether K-12 or higher ed, to, to develop a peer learning network. And uh, I'm a big believer in sharing everything I know, everything, everything I've learned so far, mistakes I've made, successes we've had. Um, because it, it is a difficult journey for educators, and educators are so o- overwhelmed with the workload they already have. So to be able to, you know, take that extra step, um, teachers will do it because they're passionate about their student learning and they, well, they want to do the best for their students. But 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 it it is difficult, and so a peer learning network is, uh, I think, really really important. Let's shift focus towards research for a bit and let you put on your hat that you wear called the Immersive Learning Network. Uh, and so let's talk about that. I know, you know, you're president of the Canadian chapter for the Immersive Learning Network. And I know you've talked about the fact that you've been involved in some research, but you also just support the idea of having more research as it pertains to VR and VR in education. What are some studies that you think still need to be done or are currently sort of being done that will help pave the way for this field? Yeah, so um, I really appreciate the way you describe my, my research background at the, the start of the show, but I, I, w- I wouldn't say that um, I wouldn't qualify myself as, as um, um, I'm not a lead researcher. I've, I've had the really good fortune of, of doing research and um, being a contributing author to a number of papers. Um, but uh, I, I generally ride the coattails of people much smarter than me. Um, and uh, But I, I strongly believe in evidence-based education. Um, I come from a medical background, and evidence-based patient care is really critical, uh, that, um, that before we initiate a treatment, say with a drug or a new intervention, that it's rigorously studied, you know, using randomized control trials and double-blinded uh, randomized control trials. And I think the same applies with education. Um, although education, I think, is considerably, considerably more nuanced uh, compared to, say, medicine. And uh, it's important to, you know, do uh, both quantitative and qualitative research in education. And um, th- there's some research that looks at virtual reality, but some of it is based on older 2D technology. And I'm a little skeptical about making the leap from, uh, from uh, conclusions on a paper describing uh, 2D learning to 3D learning. Um, so I think, you know, because 3D learning has really only been viable for educators from around 2016, I think there is a, a paucity of research at the moment and um, just incredible amount of low-hanging fruit um, in this field. We're, we're currently doing some research on virtual reality anatomy, uh, for example. So we're looking um, at Georgian College, we're looking at uh, immersive VR versus non-immersive VR and um, whether uh, that experience-based learning uh, is motivational for the students and w- what the enjoyment level is for the students. Um, and then uh, we're also doing a 
quantitative piece on that to to measure whether um, students um, how how students perform pre and post test um, using two D versus uh, virtual reality. And I think this is just one of many studies we're going to end up doing. Um, there are a couple of particular studies that I'm interested in. For example, our advanced care paramedic students have been doing resuscitation in virtual reality using a really interesting program by a company called Health Scholars uh, called Advanced Cardiac Life Support. And this program uses uh, voice recognition and artificial intelligence. And the student essentially stands in virtual reality in a room and the room is filled with um, avatars, uh, paramedic avatars, all of whom have name tags, and there's someone in cardiac arrest or in distress on the floor. And the student essentially just, just tells the avatars what to do. So the, the student will say, Aaron, can you check for a pulse? Phil, can you char start chest compressions? Fatima, can you defibrillate and start an intravenous line uh, as soon as you get a chance? Uh, Ross, can you give a milligram of epinephrine? And um, the program helps students develop their leadership skills and also their situational skills uh, because one of the things that's built into the program is the person who's doing chest compression start, may start to slow down, which is exactly what happens in real life. They get tired, they start to slow down, they're unaware they're slowing down. And so the student has to notice that they're slowing down and either ask them to speed up or to get someone else to do chest compressions to take over because of fatigue. And, um, there's analytics and analytics are really important for virtual reality so that the student and the teacher gets feedback on what was done, the sequence in which it was done. Did they give the right drug at the right dose at the right time to the right patient, ensuring there were no contraindications, et cetera. And uh, the, uh, what was I going to say about that? So the, the, um, um, one of the things we were thinking of uh, doing is a randomized control trial where students would be randomized to lab training only versus labs supplemented by virtual reality to see if there's a difference in performance. And we actually got this idea from, uh, uh, I met a physician in Altspace VR at an event. <laughs> so meet some great people in virtual reality. Yes. Um, I met uh, I met a guy by the name of Dr. Tim Cobalt who who runs the uh, simulation lab in his ER department. So he trains all the ER residents and he is doing some amazing work and he is doing exactly that. So he has um, his uh, emergency room residents who are doing um, um, cardiac arrest simulation with mannequins and then students doing it in virtual reality um, to see if there's a difference or to see if supplementing the training with virtual reality results in improved outcomes, uh, performance outcomes. So, you know, that's just one example. Uh, there, there are um, so many uh, other examples. We're currently, for example, we're exploring, we, we have um, one of the largest um, marine simulators in the world at our Owen Sound campus. It's a platform where students um, uh, stand on the platform and they, they have uh, wraparound video and they are learning to, to pilot uh, tanker ships and cruise ships. And things like that, which is incredible, uh, right? But um, but it's a limited space, and you can get a limited number of students on there at a time. And we're currently exploring um, uh, ship navigation and, and uh, crew management in virtual reality, which would enable us to uh, teach a, a, a large, not just a larger number of students, but also to be able to uh, ship headsets and uh, VR headsets around the world and uh, 
you know, our, our teacher, a Marine, um, uh, captain can, uh, or maritime captain can actually teach students, uh, on the ship's deck in virtual reality. Uh, and, and the potential for research there alone is really incredible. You know, what's, what's, is, is there a difference between virtual reality versus a physical simulator? And, and as you might imagine, a physical simulator costs millions to, to construct and, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain and, uh, to shift to virtual reality, or at least supplement with virtual reality, could be, uh, you know, I, th- I think the research needs to be done to see if the evidence is there to truly support it. What strikes me from all the examples that you've been talking about is the fact that, you know, and you alluded to this earlier on in the show, you know, the best use case of virtual reality is these procedural types of learning. Whereas if you look at the early research mm-hmm. that was done on whether VR was an effective medium. It was, you know, let's see if these students can remember the parts to the heart if they look at them in VR versus not in VR, which I would argue is not really the superpower of VR is to see something in a three-dimensional space compared to on a, a video or on a 2D image in a textbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agency is so important in virtual reality. And I've seen, um, I use medical simulation just because it's my background. It's, it's sort of easy to, to uh, use as an example. But um, I've done medical simulation where instead of talking to the patient or the client, um, you would speak to them using drop-down lists and you would initiate assessments and treatments choosing from drop-down lists. And that's not a reflection of the real world. So um, there are no multiple choices that pop up in your field of view when you're dealing with life and death. Um, so agency is so critical. The, the ability to, um, to to talk with the client, either so in a way where it's moderated by someone who's choosing from pre-recorded responses or is actually doing the responses uh, for the scenario, or um, it, you know there has to be that interaction. There has to be able a, a, a way for students to to do things with their hands, to, you know, take a stethoscope and listen to the chest, to take a blood pressure cuff and apply it to the arm. Even if the, the tactile fidelity isn't there, they're learning steps in a procedure and they can do them repeatedly in VR where they might not otherwise be able to do it as often in the lab. But um, just to your point about agency, um, you know, there was another study uh, conducted, uh, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, it was a small study. It was a randomized uh, study where they took second-year medical students um, who had no surgical training, and they were um, asked to participate in a study where they were randomized to to learn a surgical procedure of um, inserting a pin in a tibia, and they were randomized to either standard training, which was video, text, lecture, uh, versus virtual reality. And they found that the percentage of steps done correctly in VR versus standard training was 63% versus 25%. And the knowledge retention of the surgical instruments in the VR group was 50% versus 11% in the standard group. And so even though it was a small cohort, it was a small study, I think it's really compelling. And and I think we need to do more research, uh, quantitative research around uh, skills acquisition in, in virtual reality, because, you know, it's not real life, but if you're in the trades and you want to learn how to work at heights, you need to learn how to put on a safety harness and 
um, how to walk on scaffolding and where to hook up your safety harness on scaffolding uh, that's going to be safe and that's you know going to prevent a, a, a um, you know a long fall uh, is going to keep you safe and so um, you know those kinds of experiences really help prepare you for the real world in a, in a way that's impossible in a theory classroom. Well said, and and again back to that emphasis for educators. You know, n- not new educators wondering, you know, when and how should I be using virtual reality? And you know, you alluded to this certainly not just to replicate a lecture inside a digital mm-hmm. classroom, but to ramp up the experience so that they're using a lot of their senses to be able to pick up and grab objects and and be in a, a contextual situation that might elevate their heart rate and see how they perform in that more safe situation. Right. Which, you know, is a good segue to the, the, the use of biometrics for actually quantifying stress levels in VR. And so I think about um, teaching students in our policing program or our firefighting program or paramedic program or nursing program um, in virtual reality using um, biometrics like pupillometry and gaze tracking and um, uh, pulse and facial expression and galvanic skin sensors, we can begin to quantify the stress levels and we, we can scaffold learning in a way that up until now has been impossible, uh, scaffold it in such a way that we present them with sort of low acuity experiences and build from there so we can actually build stress resilience into their training, which is sends a shiver down my spine when I think about the potential for that. It's, it's really incredible, um, you know, and, and take a step out of medicine completely and over to the liberal arts. Uh, there's a program, for example, uh, called Ovation. It's not the only one, but that um, uh, helps people learn how to do uh, presentations in public, uh, either in a boardroom or to a large audience. And it uses um, eye gaze, eye tracking, and and gives you prompts as you're speaking so you would put your slides onto a screen behind you and you would be speaking to the audience and you would be gesturing with your hands and it would give you a little prompts to tell you you know you're spending a little too much time looking at your slides or you're you know you're focused on one audience member you need to scan the audience a little bit more um that that's incredible. I mean, uh, think of the work for a, a single teacher to be able to give that kind of mentorship to each and every student who gets up and does public speaking versus they go into a, into a room in their library, put on a VR headset and they give a speech today and another one tomorrow. And maybe the same speech the day after, uh, to the point where they they've just mastered the the craft of public speaking. Uh, it's it's it, it really is something. Yeah, or even the teaching profession itself. I can't help but think about mm-hmm. my early days, and you know, we had to we called it, I called it the fishbowl. We had to go observe a teacher, and it right. was one way glass, so we could see in, but the children and the teacher couldn't see us on the other side, and then we had to go in and everyone would watch us teach and, you know, the, the kids, you know, you had to get them, you had to manage your behavior. You had so many things going on, oh. and, you know, you couldn't reset. And, 
if you did screw up that poor little kid, you know, and so having a, a VR simulator to do something like helping pre-service teachers manage, you, you talked about the word craft and often in, in, teaching is a craft and it requires so many little mm -hmm. nuances that when you're first trying to learn, you know, is slightly humiliating and, and embarrassing because mm -hmm. you're, you're on stage in the, the real show, if you will, and no chance you know, to practice first before you get in with the real little kids, so. Right, there's so much going on in the classroom, uh, so much more in the K-12 area than uh, what I've had to work with at, uh, you know, college and university. My wife is a teacher, she, she teaches grade four, and every day that I've taught at college, I thought how blessed I am to be teaching adults <laughs> compared to what she has to deal with, with, with disruptive students and parents and uh, so much. But uh, I mean, the other thing that VR offers is things like, you know, identifying uh, implicit bias when you're teaching and, and addressing bias. That's incredible. Uh, I mean, what kind of work would it take to do that without VR? It would take, uh, you know, someone coming in and monitoring your class for days, weeks, uh, that's incredible. And and the other thing is, you know, you you teach in the K-12 area and K-12 teachers ha have formal teacher training. Uh, college teachers, university teachers typically do not. They come from industry uh, or academia and they don't know anything about teaching. And when I started teaching at college, I had to go through the, you know, 12 steps for lectureholics. Um, to, to understand, you know, begin to understand what student-centered learning meant. Uh, I went in there thinking student-centered learning must mean, oh, that must mean just making eye contact with students. Well, that's, you know, I learned quickly that's not exactly what it means. And, you know, giving a lecture, unless you're a really talented lecturer and storyteller, is, is the quickest way to anesthetize your audience. And so students need to be active, right? They need to be doing things and talking and debating and discussing and, and inquiring. And, um, you know, teachers in the K-12 area are really good at that. Um, uh, teachers at college universities, not so much, but we try. Uh, and, um, you know, again, uh, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, VR just has so much potential for that kind of experiential learning where, you know, uh, I can truly be um, the, the guide on the side, the rumble strip that just sort of steers the students back in, into, the, into the lane uh, as they're learning themselves and, and discovering on their own. Rob, I'm mindful of time here, so that's kind of a great segue to sort of end our amazing talk and discussion. Is there anything maybe left unsaid that you feel the audience, which are mostly educators, might want to hear? Yeah, the only thing I would say is, uh, well, uh, two things. One, um, if you're a teacher, in, if you get the opportunity to explore virtual reality, I strongly encourage people to do that. Uh, and um, don't don't make your first virtual reality experience a roller, co roller coaster <laughs> or you'll be turned off virtual reality forever, uh, unless you really love roller coasters and you're not prone to motion sickness. But, you know, what's, what's interesting is, um, you know, I'm teaching this virtual reality educator micro-credential uh, with educators and we meet on um, social VR platforms or spatial networks like Engage and, and Altspace VR. And... Um, as amazing as those platforms are, the trouble with them is that you, it's a typically a sitting experience and you're sitting 
but you're moving your avatar. And when your avatar is moving, but your body isn't, that conflict causes motion sickness. So we really need to address the motion sickness uh, issue for, for about, you know, 15% of people who, who experience it. And, um, you know, there's some research going on uh, in that area. Simon Fraser, uh, Simon Fraser University on the West Coast is doing some amazing research into uh, uh, motion and mitigation of, of cyber sickness or motion sickness. Um, uh, and, and what's interesting, you know, as I teach this course, is I try to convey to them that the, the kinds of VR experiences they want for their students are um, room scale, where the student is standing and able to walk, and students uh, very rarely experience motion sickness when they're in a VR environment and they're actually physically walking. Uh, you know, for example, our nursing students are doing patient simulation. They're in a hospital room. They're walking around the bed. They're talking with the patient. They're talking with the, pa the patient's husband or wife. And um, and and that that motion, physical motion, uh, usually eliminates the the possibility of uh, motion sickness. So, uh, I would say uh, motion is the, the one of the big issues we need to deal with on social VR platforms. Rob, how can people get a hold of you? Either maybe they're interested in you know taking uh, the micro credential course or just you know, trying to learn a little bit more about as a teacher, how to get started mm -hmm. in VR, how might they go about that? Yeah, uh, they can um, easily find me on LinkedIn and they can also follow me on Twitter at EdTechMedic. Um, if, if you share my email address uh, in your podcast, I'm happy to um, respond to emails as well. Wonderful, Rob. We could I could talk with you all day, but uh, I'm mindful again of the time, and I really am thankful that you uh, took the time to come on to the show and share your wealth of knowledge, both from a research perspective, but also just from a practical perspective. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Bye for now. Okay.